The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. All right, this morning, as we are continuing our work in the fourth major section of James's letter, a section that um, spans from uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 13, so it's 13 verses, and and contrary to a qualification I made on Wednesday night, I don't like have to, to give amendments and corrections, but I... I was kind of emphatic about it, so I should be equally emphatic about my, my mistake there. It does have smaller divisions that have been supplied for us by James. And so I originally was trying to um, develop a measure of sympathy to those who were getting the review of our Sunday message and saying, you know, sometimes I chop these things up to help us have it in smaller pieces. That's not necessarily what James is doing. We're doing that for clarification's sake. The major sections are James. Some of the subsections are mine. But in this case, it really was a division, I think, that James has put in for us. So that being said, occasionally he will have subsections. He'll have uh, portions of the letter that um, are divided up into major sections, and then he'll give us some cues every so often. And I think there's a really important one here. That's part of the reason I think there needs to be some clarification to say, look, I'm drawing special attention within this section. And so I will break up some portions to better manage the volume of material covered. But there's also, again, there's times that James has his own smaller divisions within a given section. Again, usually uh, there's an identifiable shift in the argument that's being crafted, but, uh, and that's even the case with verses really between 7 and 8. We see a, a transition, as it were, from the initial command, the illustration, the build out of it, and then a a shift in the argument, the same argument, but a, a shift in it to develop it a little bit more precisely. And so we will see those as well. So there's a consequential break there within the fourth major section of the book I'll be drawing your attention to later. But also I see another one in verse five. So just walk with me. And if you were here Wednesday night, you got the amended correction. If you weren't, there's things that might be missed, maybe things I mis- made mistakes on. So um, I want to encourage you just to be constantly thinking, how can we understand the totality of the book, the sections of the book, the development of the arguments so that we can better understand the, the precise matters of attention and the, uh, the particular passages as well. But to help you better appreciate that, I first again um, want to speak to something that we've not given significant attention to since introducing the book weeks ago now, several weeks ago. Um, this is another matter of structure, and you might think, oh no, another one. We would go over the, the outline and every so often and to kind of build it out, but this is one that I think is really important. We gave a lot of attention to it, again, a number of weeks ago, and that's namely the, the major themes. And there's a reason behind our speaking to these matters of structure and themes here is I believe that they will contribute to our fuller appreciation of this work um, in a very important section of the letter. So by way of review, um, here are some major themes that we'll introduce into varying degrees. Uh, I would say most all of them, almost all of them, were developed in chapter one. Themes that will continue to be woven into the larger development of the letter, and that contributes to my seeing chapter one as a whole, a foundation to the book. And while not referencing the passages for the individual themes, um, I think those of you who have been walking through the book of James with us and you've been progressing through chapter one, you're going to hear and think about things. You're going you're to hear when, you, when we mention just a moment, Testing or trials, oh, yeah, but um, consider it all joy uh, when you encounter various trials, knowing that testing your faith produces endurance. You're going to, just comes to mind because we've walked there, we've, we've labored, we've layered even in our labor there. So that being said, let's consider the various themes that have been developed in chapter one with a view to the argument that's developing in chapter two. So testing or trials, as we just mentioned, we have wisdom, major theme for the book, perseverance, 
God's word or the scriptures perfect, complete, or mature. I've lumped all that together. We could really, perfect would be sufficient, but I know that that might have some connotations that we don't intend, but maybe we do a little bit, just enough to use it. So perfect, complete, or mature, the law, and the law is used in a variety of ways. We saw that at the end of chapter one, carries over to chapter two, faith, the rich and the poor, works, speech, asking or praying. So he He'll occasionally, especially in chapter one, he'll, uh, those of you who lack wisdom, which is all of us, you ask and the Lord will provide. That's a form of prayer. So we're lumping that together because later he's going to explicitly talk about prayer. And finally, sin. So while not addressed also in the first chapter, we do have foundations for the remaining themes too. Justification. Justification, it wasn't in chapter one, but what did we have? We had the expectation of faith accompanied by works. Well, I think we're starting to drift toward his argument for justification and how to understand justification and faith and works. Judgment doesn't overtly address it, but I think it's plainly there. Patience, again, I would kind of pair that with perseverance. So it was really kind of there in a a fashion. So we see in chapter one that we've covered almost and functionally at least alluded to every major section of the book. And so I think that does contribute to our understanding of the role of chapter one in those first uh, chapter of the book and its first major three sections as it is we're giving us a foundation for the book as a whole. And with that, going to direct the nature of how we understand the argument as it continues to unfold to include in chapter two. But that being said, I'm increasingly persuaded that we should consider expanding the book's foundation to include this fourth section as well. And you might be thinking, I bet he's going to do the same when he gets to section five. It's not going to happen, as best I can determine, but um, what I'm seeing as we've been working and continue working in this fourth section, and, and, and again, are these just decisions that we kind of, we just kind of decide for ourselves? No, there, I think there's clues within how he writes, how he develops argument, and there's even grammatical clues to a shifting in terms of the writing style that happens at chapter two. And so am I still saying we're going to carry it over? Yes, I I do. Verses 1 to 13. And part of that is that this is a section that packs in seven of the major themes in in half of the verses. So already you're getting a a dense treatment of some of the core major themes in a very short, relatively short uh, expression, as it were. So we have God's word of the scriptures, perfect, complete, mature, the law, faith, rich and poor, speech, sin. Those are really, really important themes. And he's, he's put those in, these first 13 verses. So that's helped kind of press me to think about this a little bit more. But it's not just that. It's not just the density of major themes covered that's persuaded me to expand the foundation of the letter. Otherwise, I'd just go ahead and roll in the whole of chapter 2. Because at least then we're, gonna, we're definitely going to get justification, right? It's right around the corner. We're going to hit verse 14. You're going to have faith and works and justification. But, and you also have themes of speech as well. So it's not just that. It's not that we're going to keep expanding this foundation, but rather it's a view to the fact of how he's making his argument, what he's articulating in these tight sections of the passage and its relationship to the other early portions of the letter, as it will be reflected later in the letter. But it's also of his use of a term that's quite dear to us, or at least I hope so, namely his use of beloved. And this is something I've wrestled with for weeks now. Um, So if you are um, familiar with how I study or how I prepare, you'll probably, always in the home, how's it going? Um, 
behind and I'm going to get there and I'm struggling. Those are, that's just, that's the weekly experience of engaging with the text. It's plain enough. It's plain enough, obviously, that uh, somebody just in reading it could, could grab hold of it. But then you say, oh, but I'm going to teach it. Well, I'm not sure that I fully grasp that. Uh, or, well, that needs some more treatment. And then you start laboring in it. You're like, oof, this is something more there. And you just, re- it continues the cycle. Well, right here within, um, not a lefty, but if I was, it'd be even more convenient. Um, have a whiteboard up on the wall. So you have a whiteboard over here. You've got things posted up here. You've got things spread everywhere. But this board over here has been engaged with this theme of beloved. And I've tried to figure out why and how is he using that. And this is, again, something I've wrestled with for weeks now. It's been a matter of special attention on the whiteboard within arm's reach. And I've scribbled out my thoughts, my conclusions. James' use of that precious description as readers, these beloved brothers. Now, you might be thinking, beloved's not a wholly unusual way for New Testament authors to address their readers. And it's not. We, we've walked through this. We saw generous uses of it by Peter in both of his letters, by Jude in his letter, and I would say that how they use that did catch our attention. It, it always secured our attention, that, that engagement of beloved brothers, beloved brothers and sisters, beloved in general. And we saw, again, those generous uses of it. But I would argue that James is exercising a unique intentionality of the descriptive title in his letter, only using it three times. Again, that could be stylistic, could be preference, but I think he's directing our attention in certain ways. And I come to this conclusion in part because, as we've established, he already uses a coupling of a term, namely brother. That's an important, important word in the book of James. So you look for key words, you look for key themes, you look for development, you look for structure. James uses brother all throughout this letter. And he does it in a very particular way at important juncture. So if I were to put the outline up there, you would see, wait a brother, 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 brother. You're going to see a pattern there because he, what he does quite frequently is he couples brother with an imperative or a, a command to introduce most of the major sections of the letter. Not all of them, but frequently, what you will see is brother, command, or brothers, accompanied by command, and he's introducing a new major section, a clear uh, thematic shift, as it were, building on the whole of the letter, but a definite shift. And while this third use of beloved in chapter 2, verse 5, does not introduce a new major section, the other two do, it does come at a major pivot point within a section of no small consequence for the book's themes and overall development. So what I would argue is this use here of beloved and brother and, is a, and a command, he's simply amplifying a pattern within his writing by combining beloved brothers with a command, commands that shape the tone and the trajectory of the letter. And with that, I would argue that folds chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, into that foundation, as it were. So in chapter 1, verse 16, we have, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's a command accompanied by brothers, but uniquely so, beloved brothers. Then in chapter 1, verse 19, we have, Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And finally, in our passage today, chapter 2, verse 5, we have, Listen. It's not a suggestion. He's commanding, Listen. Listen, my beloved brothers. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? So with these three unique addresses of his reader as beloved, James has established Beloved, have a right view of God as you persevere by means of the wisdom from above, knowing that he is the unchanging sovereign giver of all good gifts to include your salvation. That's a 
really important hallmark in our walk here. Secondly, beloved, prepare yourselves to receive God's word that you in turn might become doers of it, putting truth received to action. Again, a major defining element in our journey through this letter and in his progress toward his goal here. And now, beloved, remember our impartial God has chosen the humble who love him. And I think what we're going to see is, boy, that's really, really important, not just so that we'll have a proper valuation of rich and poor and the spiritually rich and the spiritually poor, but rather the whole trajectory of how we will engage one another throughout the remaining portions of the letter. He's making arguments with these pivot points, these major shifts of attention, as it were. Now, if James is writing, and I would argue he is, with the purpose of seeing that his readers would be made perfect, complete, mature in Christ by way of heeding and walking in the wisdom that comes from above, then I think these three engagements that he wove into the foundational portions of this letter provide robust anchor points for the filling out and development of this core purpose. So he has a very clear purpose. He's developing an argument, but every so often in these foundations, he's driven especially deep. It's a beloved once your attention secured here, this is a, an anchor point, as it were, as we're continuing to develop our argument. And this is the last time he's going to do it. And that contributes to my seeing 2, 1 to 13, as a foundational element of the letter. And again, you might be like, well, that's interesting. No, it's not just interesting. It will shape how we continue to see the development of the letter and the argument thereof. So once more, consider these three unique and affectionate engagements. Beloved, have a right view of God as you persevere. It's really imperative. Beloved, receive the word that you might do the word. And now, beloved, with a view to God's election, love one another. Now, let's just pause here for a moment because I'm clearly excited about that. If, again, I, I kind of wish I was a lefty so we could just double time this and whatnot. Working through these things, I've wrestled through it, but I know that that's an introduction of the matter to you. Because, again, we've worked through these elements a number of times, albeit, again, in various ways. I still know it's a lot of pieces to hold together in mind at one time. And this all before we've jumped back into our primary text. So let's just summarize what we've established so far. James is writing his letter with the purpose of seeing that his readers would be made perfect, complete, mature in Christ. That's, that's his objective. He wants you to be perfect, complete, mature in Christ. How? by way of heeding and walking in the wisdom that comes from above. He's not just talking about wisdom in some general way that skillful living uh, in terms of living in a way that is, uh, reflects that you can apply knowledge and truth in a way that's helpful and, and whatnot, but it's a wisdom that comes from above. This is the spirit-informed wisdom of God that's going to help you be brought to the place of perfect maturity or complete maturity. His style and approach is very action-oriented. Uh, when Pastor Matt was mentioning, I don't know why I'm qualifying this, but I think it's important. I thought, this is, you're speaking my language, of course. Qualify everything. Tell them why we need to knock out a wall. Tell them the process and what it might look like and how that impact, well, how's that going to impact the carpet. And just explain everything because every, all those details are so precious. I have, a different, I have a different style, right? I have a different approach. Well, James's style is very action-oriented. Lots of commands. We know his objective. How's he getting there? He's peppering us with all kinds of commands as the wisdom-rooted maturity that he is pressing us to has demonstrable works. He expects you to demonstrate these things through works, and it's very practical in its expression. So again, he's got a lot of action items, a lot of expectations, because he expects a lot of action out of you 
because this is a very practical expression of truth. James sees the connection. He's not just somebody that's, wasn't that an interesting thought? Doesn't die there. It's an interesting thought that takes root into your life and produces action. That's why when we get to, you know, the latter half of chapter two, we're not surprised when he talks about faith and works. Of course he's going to talk about faith and works. And before he fills out the body of his argument, I would argue he's introduced a robust foundation that again includes effectively all the elements that he'll go on to further develop. Also within this foundation are some special, again, high points. These high points that we just addressed will amplify the tone of his argument. And so he's, he's clearly pressing ahead, and every so often he's really giving a, a highlighted emphasis, as it were. And these high points come by way of addressing his readers with the affectionate description of beloved. Beloved, have a right view of God as you persevere. You understand chapter one, right? Wisdom and trials and perseverance. Does he not capture something when he pauses there and says, beloved, and he's directing us again to have a right view of God in our perseverance. I think that's pretty consequential. Beloved, receive the word that you might do the word. That was right after the end of chapter one. But boy, was that not a high point of the letter. 122 is one of the most well-known, well-loved portions of James. Don't be just a hearer who deludes himself or who deceives himself, but be a doer of the word. And how does he approach that? Beloved, receive the word that you might do the word. So that high point engagement. And so now, beloved, with a view to God's election, love one another. He gave us a command, chapter 2, verse 1. He's going to build out that command by way of illustration, by way of argument, by way of uh, finally driving us to a proper understanding of the, the application of the high points of the law. And right there in the middle, what does he do? He pauses to say, have a right view of one another based off of God's effectual work in you because it's a, you want to be impartial? Well, recognize that you are part of the beloved of Christ. You've been redeemed. So recognize God's election and the expectation that puts on you to love one another. So again, he's laying a foundation. The rest of the letter will be working these things out. So if we followed those sections as we've developed them so far, I hope that we also can see these high points as they're tied to this, uh, this, uh, this description of his readers, as it were, these beloved brothers. And that final engagement of his readers as beloved is where we are today. That's where we, we kind of landed there um, last week. We, we landed, touched down, talked about it, and we took off again, and we, we finished. But we're going to be returning there today. And we again, we worked on that last week. I made, it con- um, made consistent allusions also to the to the principle of the poor, right? That they're not just fiscally poor. That's an important thing to recognize. This is not just a, there is a measure of, you know, you'll read some people, or you may study some people, you may hear some teachers that say, well, the, the issues, we've got to take fiscal poverty off the table. Well, the illustration doesn't hold up if you take fiscal poverty off the table. You have somebody that's in dirty clothes and someone that comes in bright and shiny clothes and rings. There's clearly an element of fiscal poverty that he's incorporating here, but it's not just fiscally poor though that is, again, plainly an element of the text, but the poor in spirit. And specifically, we were driving, I was trying to press you last week, that what was a characteristic of them, I kept repeating this, it was almost a bit of a teaser for, hey, look, there's a text that's going to speak to this, but we're not going to talk about it yet, that they were the poor in spirit who loved much. They loved much. I also argued in view of James's illustration, the gospel is often put on display in our engagement of others, sometimes more plainly than it's declared. And 
I know we can fall into the, the wonderful world of cliches here and be like, uh, don't just tell me about Jesus, and, but show me, and et cetera, whatever. There's not, we don't need to throw all merit out to that. The fact is, if someone comes in and we treat them with partiality, then we've just expressed something about the gospel to them. And James has made the point that you can't do that. And that it may not just be how you treat them when you enter. There's no partiality to be expressed. That's not loving your neighbor. And so we work through that. And then I finished by sharing about the men who accompanied me to church and college. Men who were living, they were really living illustrations of those whom the wickedly, wickedly partial would dishonor. And, and I'm grateful to report that was never part of the experience. And I hope that I didn't allude to that. I just recognized that, boy, they're not going to be a fit, good fit at any particular church. It's hard to receive people that, that struggle in certain ways. It's hard to see people that are dirty, that aren't clear in their articulation of themselves and act peculiar because things aren't firing all cylinders. That's, it's hard in that context. And it'll be hard if the Lord introduces that into our context. We will probably struggle to varying degrees, and that's okay. Just struggle well struggle with impartiality. And so I was talking about them and trying to drive home that this is what it can look like, what it should look like. But again, they were received to a little humble church. And why? Because it was filled with the people who understood not the glitter, but the glory of the gospel. They understood that. And as we return to James, I want to season your thoughts now with one more approach to this, namely on the humility in which the glory of the gospel naturally shrouds itself by first directing your attention to a passage from Luke. Luke chapter 7, and this is the, that's what he kept talking about. It is. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 47. And you can follow in your copy of the scriptures or up on the screen, but uh, we'll go ahead and read together now. Now, one of the Pharisees was asking him, asking Jesus to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, saying, If this man were a prophet, he would know, what's, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he graciously forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water from my feet, but she is not but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I would argue as we're struggling to understand this concept of not showing partiality in the context of loving one another, that it's the poor who know the crushing weight of debt. Some people have no concept of that, have no concept of struggling, of having something loom over you because you can't satisfy what you owe. The poor recognize that. 
They recognize that in the fiscal context, but the poor in spirit recognize that as they stand before God. And therefore, so precious many of them will also know the richness, a richness of faith and inheritance in God's kingdom, because having been forgiven much, they also in turn love much. They understand the nature of their weight as they stand before the Lord and recognize they're holy and done. They're not confused as to who the roles are. They're not confused as to who the sinner is and who the religious Pharisee is, as it were. So that being said, let's read the whole of our passage together. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to purpose to finish our work in uh, verses 5 through 7 today. Um, I think that's a reasonable goal. So let's read our text together. We're going to read it in its fullness because I think you need to see how we frame it, how James frames it, and then we'll narrow our focus to 5 through 7. So James continues now, my brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That's the command that's going to drive the rest of this passage. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Ah, here's that high point, as it were, drawing special attention. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and they themselves drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, being convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, we began our engagement of verse 5 last week and primarily gave our attention to the broad nature of God choosing the poor. Affirming this, we observe that from the incarnate, ministry, the incarnate public ministry of Christ to the testimony of Paul, there's a clear affirmation that the Lord has an affection for the poor, the weak, and the needy. We saw that with, again, who does Jesus engage? How does he engage them? How does Paul talk about the testimony of the larger church? You were weak. You were simple. You weren't the, you weren't the most glorious ones. And yet the Lord chose you and redeemed you and drew them to himself. With this, though, there's a balance. There's, a, would say, the balance of the Beatitudes, as it were. And so here we have two expressions, two teachings, two engagements of the Lord expressing the Beatitudes, the blessed are, and we're going to have to hold these, in, in not in tension, but in complementary fashion here, because we're going to affirm both of them, where he states in Luke 6.20, blessed are the poor. This is fiscally poor. He compares the poor and the rich. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then in Matthew, Matthew 5, we have blessed are the poor in spirit. So the spiritually poor, those who recognize before God, they have nothing to offer, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the naturally poor 
or the poor of this world appear to have an assurance of receiving the kingdom of God, and the spiritually poor, those who are humbled before God, also have an assurance of receiving the kingdom. Matters, again, that we have to hold in a measure of balance, as it were. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But with this, we drew out that James is not speculating on this matter, but rather he's affirming it by asking the first of three questions framed with a negative element that naturally directs us to a positive answer. So all three questions will have a negative component that are always driving us to the presumptive answer of yes. So when he asks a question, you can go ahead and know with confidence the answer is going to be yes. So he begins with, did not, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And the anticipated answer is yes. Yes, God did make such a choice to choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, a choice that we'll, we're going to look at a little bit more closely now. And immediately when we do that, we come to the matter that we've given significant attention to already this morning, James's use of beloved. So we have an opening imperative. Remember, this is how he's going to commonly, but not always, but commonly start off a new section. So here we have a, an imperative, a command, listen, and it's paired with a nominative of direct address, namely beloved brothers, which would appear to potentially begin a new major section. So, but I've argued this isn't a new major section. So what is he doing? We've, we've talked about this, so we're going to walk together now. He's using this combination differently here as he's not changing the subject. If he was changing the subject, ah, new major section. We got all our clues. But he's not changing the subject, but amplifying it with a noted measure of intensity. And so when you give cues, I'll give certain cues. Um, used to be um, more obvious when a pastor closes his Bible. Okay, you got maybe five to ten more minutes, and then he's going to pray, and we're done. Well, if I close my laptop, we know show's over because we can't even sing now. I've, I've killed the PowerPoint. But he gives us clues. Ah, change of subject, new elements, or the elements that we expect, new major section. But he's given us a lot of the clues, but now he's not changing the subject. So what is he doing? He's amplifying it. So he's amplifying it. He's giving a noted measure of intensity. So again, he opens verse 5 with a common pattern he begins, that he uses to begin a new major section. But rather than transition to a new subject, he's drilling down on the one at hand. And again, that should get our attention. Oh, why did he close his Bible? Why did he close the laptop? Is he finishing up? No, he's just continuing to talk. Maybe this is of unique value and importance to him. Well, in a like way, James has given us our clues, but he's continuing on. So it is of unique standing. He's not offering counsel here also. He's not counseling on, you know, this is how you should engage people of various economic status as, so, as though we need some kind of uh, uh, welcoming committee 101 course. When you have these kind of people come, this is how you treat them. When you have these kind of people come, this is how you treat those guys. This is not some kind of a counsel, again, on engaging those of various economic social status should they come into your church. Rather, what he's doing, and he's continuing to do now, is he's pressing us to feel the weight of something, to feel the weight of an invaluable matter of maturity and faithfulness. He's pressing to have a right valuation of Christ-redeemed people, and with this, the expected course of action to do what? to love one another. When you understand the nature of the person, you understand the nature of the conduct toward them. This is Christ, beloved. They are redeemed people that he has promised these things to. Therefore, you will love them, love one another, and thereby fulfill our kingdom charge to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
So our attention is secured by his employing, again, that similar pattern that we would expect with a new introduction or the introduction of a new major theme, but also the very, by the very nature of this command itself, he's also telling us to do something. And he's saying, listen. So now we have a double impact, right? We have the, the pattern. The pattern's different, so it's amplifying things. And what's the command that's associated with this pattern? It wasn't just, oh, there's a command. Interesting. Listen to the command because it's to do what? to listen. So I think he's really driving our attention here. Now, people you have, um, I'm sure all of you have been to all kinds of leadership classes and seminars, and you're all wonderful leaders now. And so you know that you're not leading if people aren't following. Well, guess what? Um, you're not a very effective communicator if people aren't listening. So any speaker, any teacher, any pastor, otherwise, we naturally want, and part of the functional relationship is that those who are being addressed listen. That's the understood relationship between the parties involved. So there's a clear, again, another, another layer, I would say, of emphasis when there's a call out for those who are already reading or present, who are listening, when there's a command given now to listen. You are listening, but I'm calling you to give special attention in your, attention, in your attentiveness. And again, this is amplified further when it's, it's not a passive request with like, hey, could, hey, would y'all, hey we're going to start. Would you listen up? No, you're, you're locked in. You're engaged. And yet he's commanding, direct command, listen, have proper attention to what's going to follow. And I think about the, how, this can, um, um, how, how this can be an effective tool. So there's, there's probably a range of opinions. I'm mindful I have um, a, 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 an English lit lady who's reforming toward math, and that's a whole other subject, but... Nevertheless, I'm mindful of that. I'm mindful of others of you who have a strong background in literature and, and, and like matters. And so there may be a, a whole host of ideas on terms of that's a really, that is an effective tool of communication in literature when, when someone's talking and they say, listen, I don't engage you. Well, I think of one of the best examples in terms of common literature would be uh, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, when in Act 3, Scene 2, and the Roman Senate has done what? They've, they've murdered Caesar. He did not. Pay attention to the Ides of March, or was it the, the Ides of March? Yeah, so pay attention when they say things like that. Nevertheless, he's stabbed in the back, and he is now passed. The Roman Senate has justified their conduct, um, and Mark Antony begins what was going to be a speech. Uh, it was kind of posited as a funeral speech. We're going to memorialize him, but not overly so. But it proved to be a charge to transform the opinion of the masses. He persuades them that what was done was not noble, but treasonous. He already has their attention. Antony's going to speak. Okay, Antony's speaking. But how does he do it? He's going to craft it to say, now I really want your attention. And what does he do? Or through Shakespeare, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. They already are. The guy's standing up there. He's talking. But now he's drawing them in saying, listen. Lend me your ears. Wow, what, a, what a striking and impactful way for a speaker that already has you, a writer that already has you to draw you in further to say, I've got something you need to hear. And boy, what he said shifted the whole uh, trajectory of things, as it were. It was a striking appeal to listen. And his appeal, again, it, they were heated, and the mob shifted their opinions. And such appeals and even commands to listen have been peppered throughout history and literature alike. They're impactful because there's a weight to what will come and it deserves to be heard accordingly. And James's readers would have had before them perhaps the most well-known command to hear or to listen in history. They would have had something that would have immediately been drawn to mind here because they repeated this command to listen 
on a daily basis, a command that marked their days and rooted their theology, what we've commonly come to know as the Great Shema. Why is it called the Great Shema? Well, we could actually just translate it and call it the Great Hear, the Great Listen. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, another command to hear. He's already been writing. He already has their attention. This is strikingly important. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, James obviously would not have cited from Shakespeare. The timing just doesn't work for him. So if you're confused about the dating of James, you're really going to miss that one. He's not going to cite from Shakespeare, and he wouldn't need to anyway. But I do think he was in some measure provoking his reader's attention back to Deuteronomy here. That's my opinion as I've wrestled through this. Not everybody's going to agree, and that's okay. There's room to wrestle. And it's not just because of the shared command to listen. Maybe that would have drawn their attention. Ah, command to listen. Boy, I'm very familiar with the command to listen. Makes me think of Deuteronomy 6. That's not a bad thing, but it's more than that. Because he's driving us to the command also to love one's neighbor as themselves. Now, you might think, that's not in Deuteronomy. I think we actually peppered that into one of the quizzes on Wednesday night. It's true. It is a command he expresses as the royal law, though, which itself comes from Leviticus 19 and not Deuteronomy 6, but it's intimately paired with the command of Deuteronomy to do what? To love God. You wonder, where are those great commands coming from? Well, Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, which we'll see in a moment is what also distinguishes the chosen poor is they do what? They're the chosen poor, not just because, well, meet a quota, but because they are also those who love God. They heed the greatest commandment. And I think James may be pairing these things in such a way so as to knit together what his brother would always declare. What are the greatest commandments? What satisfies all the law and the prophets? That you would love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So let's pause and examine what James is doing here. He is commanding us to listen He's trying to get our attention, securing our attention in a unique and special way, I would argue. And with this, he's expecting for us to come to a proper conclusion that God has a special valuation of the poor, the poor who are not to be treated with superficial partiality. James does, not, or James, James does this by framing a question with an implicit answer. We know the answer is yes. And this question in verse 5 will be followed by two more questions in verse 6 and 7. And we know the answers will be yes. But nowhere in these verses is he commanding us to love these persons. We, you didn't read that. You might have thought, well, I thought I read that. Well, you read it in verse um, 8. We haven't got to verse 8 yet. 5, 6, 7. It's not there. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It's not there. But what he is doing in these sections and in this buildup is he's cultivating a right view of these persons, which is, is that the, excuse me, which is that God has set his affection on them and they on God. Therefore, having that established, having a right understanding and valuation of them, how God values them, how God views them, how they in turn have responded to the Lord's affection and, and election upon them, it is implicit that as Christ's beloved, we're going to do what? We will love them. And this implicit conclusion will go on to be directly addressed in the next section where he turns our attention to the fulfilling of the royal law or the second of the two great commandments. So, there's the opening command to listen, 
to yield your attention to what is coming. And that is the two-part engagement by God with the poor of this world. God cho- uh, and, and with that comes the two-part engagement of God with, this, uh, with the poor of this world. The first part, God chose them to be rich in faith, and he made them heirs of the kingdom. Rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom. Now, we're all acquainted with this language of God choosing or exercising his sovereign election and calling a people to himself, independent of their merits, their strengths, or otherwise. Specifically, he's calling them to himself for salvation. We're very familiar with that. That becomes part of the common uh, language, part of our worship, part of our praying, but also it's part of James. He's already expressed this in a different way, but he has expressed this in chapter 1, verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So God exercised his sovereign choice in setting his affection upon a people and drawing them to himself by means of illuminating truth through his word. So in the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So we have a reversal of fortunes here that was rooted in another reversal of fortunes, all expressing God's elective choice. And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor. A reversal of fortunes for a particular reason, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So we have a a dueling reversal of fortunes, as it were. Therefore, Christ has made those who are impoverished in the view and estimation of this world rich in faith. So they are rich now. But what's the nature of their standing and their wealth It's rich in faith. That's a currency that is of great standing in God's economy while going unnoticed by man. Because this enrichment by God, it's not going to buy a house for you. I know that people, it's why we feel a measure of tension when people, they have certain expressions of blessed. And sometimes that blessed is confused with prospering. I rejoice if someone's prospering and that can be an expression of blessing. We give thanks to God for that. And there's reasons to maybe even equate that. We think about Psalm 1. We're like, well, there's a measure of blessing that we should anticipate, but how does that work itself out? But this, again, this enrichment by God, it's not going to buy houses. It's not going to buy cars. And it won't buy temporal comforts. So what does this richness provide? Well, it's a richness that provides the means to joyfully endure under various trials. It's a richness that asks and secures the wisdom that Uh, comes from above so that life might be negotiated in a skillful way that is pleasing to God. It's a richness that that leads one to a proper receiving and doing of God's word. And it's a richness that experiences present grace that will yield to future glory and with such the receiving of the full inheritance. That's the richness that the poor have been provided in their electing choice by God. So, If we were to break James's question up into two parts here, we could first affirm the following, that God has indeed chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and therefore they are of all people most to be envied, esteemed, and made much of in our company as they possess a richness that supersedes gold rings and bright clothing. Now, there's another element of God's choosing that James speaks to here, one that primarily has a view to the future. So the present component is expressed in their superior riches of faith, and the future component of God's elective choice for them includes the assurance of inheriting the kingdom. So while they may presently experience a lack, there will be a fullness of life, fullness of joy, and fullness of satisfaction in God's good, perfect, and eternal provisions. 
So not unlike the promised crown of life that are present, there are present benefits now, but the fullness of the inheritance is eschatological, having a view to Christ, who himself was humbled, meek, and poor, but that exchange doesn't remain as it were. He will be returning in the glory of his Father. Also, like the crown of life, this assured reward and future blessing has inherent qualifications. The receiving of the crown of life has the qualification of being approved. It's not that he's just handing out, remember, no participation trophies here. It's the qualification of being approved. Becoming heirs of the kingdom has this qualification of God's election. So it's not just, you get the kingdom and you get the kingdom. It's, uh, there's a qualification that God has chosen. He set his affection on these particular poor, as it were. Both have been promised also to those who love God. So those who receive the crown of life, those who receive the kingdom, is those who love God. Therefore, we must remember that while James is speaking broadly in a way that expresses common patterns of experience, it is nevertheless not all of the poor who enjoy such blessings, and it is not all or to the exclusion of all of the rich. These assurances are for those who have been chosen by God and in turn love him. And to balance this out, William Barclay stated the following, It is not that Christ and the church do not want the great and the rich and the wise and the mighty. We must be aware of, inverted, of an inverted snobbery, as we've already seen. But it has the simple fact that the gospel offered so much to the poor and demanded so much of the rich, that it was the poor who were swept into the church. And I think he captured it in that last sentence there. It, de- it offered so much to the poor and demanded so much of the rich. And you can see that. You watch how Jesus engaged those whom he, those throughout his public ministry, those who knew they needed something and those who thought they wanted something. And there's a tension there. And how he engaged them was very differently, always to the same objective. So the poor who have these great Encouraging assurances are those who also meet the critical qualification of loving God, the same exact qualification James provided in chapter 1 in speaking to the crown of life. And while I plan to return to this next week in working through the more direct engagements with the law, I'd bring to your attention now that we plainly know, or that what we plainly know is that James is pressing us to the command of loving our neighbor. That's what he's pressing us to. That is how a righteous impartiality is applied. We've been talking about it, been alluding to it. We've even been overtly stated it, but we recognize we're getting there. That's where he's going. That righteous impartiality is rooted in one's love for their neighbor and they're fulfilling the great or royal law, as it were. And that command is being cultivated, again, throughout the whole of this section. We're not just kind of teasing it out like some prolonged trailer. This is a building, building, building to say this is where it's culminating, including a proper understanding of God's view of the poor, And this is arguably a principal reason that James exercises one of his three special addresses to his readers, again, as beloved. I think he's highlighting something for us. He wants this matter to receive the special attention it deserves. And again, I really think that he wants, I think he wants this to hit them differently, as it were, as it will uniquely shape the aim for his writing and its continued development in this letter. But it's also informing his articulation of the law as it applies to Christ's church by cultivating our understanding and relationship to it and view of how Jesus expressed its summation and fulfillment, namely by way of keeping the two greatest commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor. So while he's pressing the second commandment of loving our neighbor, he's already implicitly included that the faithful, by design and identity, are keeping the first commandment as they are the ones who love God. 
Again, their assurance of the crown of life and being heirs of the kingdom are directly rooted in their loving God and their keeping of the first of the greatest commandments. Now, coming back, coming back to James 2.5 and a little bit tightening our focus again, uh, narrowing the, the context of the verse here, James is crafting the contrast evaluations, not just so that we'll, again, treat people nicely or feel bad if they're, if they're impoverished. That's not what he's aiming at. He's arguing that this is God's vantage point and we would be wise to have the same as these, two, these, as these poor are also Christ's beloved. And with that in view, how God evaluates them, how God views them, I would argue what follows hits harder now. He kind of set us up for like, oh, isn't that interesting? And then boom, nice gut punch as it were, because he goes on right after this to say, this is how God values them. This is his valuation. And then what does he say in chapter two, verse six? But you have dishonored the poor man. Now, if we just stated that one sentence, you'd be like, yeah, maybe I did. But that sentence is what, it immediately falls what? That God has set his affectionate choosing on them. That they are rich in faith. That they will inherit the kingdom. But you've dishonored the poor man. Oh, it hits us harder now. The poor man who God chose to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. But the superficial and deficient valuation is then rebuked, not just for humiliating the one that God has esteemed, but in the esteeming of the one who God has really made low, namely the rich who are abusing the beloved. Low in their engagement of others and low as they express their slanderous words about God himself. So unpacking this, James asks another question, which also has an affirmative answer. So we know the answer, even as he poses the question, is it not the rich who oppress you and they themselves drag you into court? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. So he's not ambiguous in expressing what was plainly an established and presumably uh, continued experience of his readers. This is apparently on some measure, they had an easy point of relation with this. Namely, those who are in positions of authority were leveraging that authority in a way that made life unnecessarily challenging or hard, presenting unjust circumstances and outcomes for these believers. That apparently was and continued to be part of their experience. And it was clear James was not just expressing the common plight of the poor having challenges associated with their work and social standing, resources and opportunities. Rather, this appears to have gone beyond natural struggles to the point of abusive treatment. And he paints a clear picture here, too, stating the rich were, were dragging them to court. Now, I'd remind you that the whole of this section, again, is not necessarily tied to some event that James was made aware of. This is not a, a Paul will write and say, I've heard this happen among you. I need to correct or address that. James doesn't appear to be doing that. He appears to be um, making a sweeping picture of the character and nature of their culture, their experiences and common struggles with sin, with self, and others. So I think he's just framing a common experience picture, as it were. So lacking a historic moment to attach these images to, we see them as broad, illustrative demonstrations of common realities that should press us to think and act rightly when such times do come, when we struggle with the prospect of expressing impartiality for superficial reasons. Because as absurd as that sounds, why would we struggle with that? Well, we saw that the New Testament churches struggled with that. And guess what? We're not that special. We are. You're, you are special. But you're not that special. You will drift. You will wonder. We will have a propensity toward this. Because as absurd as it sounds, it has not, again, been an uncommon point of struggle. And the deliverance from such is increased 
maturity expressed through applying the wisdom from above and our love for one another. That's how we distinguish ourselves by not falling into this. We grow in maturity by way of uh, acquiring and practicing the wisdom from above and expressing it by loving one another. That will insulate us from it. In that regard, yeah, we will remain special in that way. And so again, while we do not have a moment of time occurrence for these expressed offenses, we do have an idea of how they might have played out for James's readers. Their context at this time was one in which the primary challengers to Christianity were, were likely unbelieving Jews. The state, as it were, wasn't pressing in quite as hard as it would. Apparently, to include those of the unbelieving Jewish community that were of greater wealth and natural influence, and we need to also remember this was a time that the Romans gave the Jewish community a measure of autonomy to address matters of their faith and its practices, to include the institution of religious courts. We saw that in the Gospels. We see that in Acts. We see that in continuing on to the epistles as well. well. That was the nature of even Paul's authority when he was Saul, or when he went by Saul, and he could say, I took letters from the high priest in Jerusalem, and I went to persecute people in Damascus and to arrest them and bring them back. That was not Rome. That was the Jewish uh, um, high courts and, and, and they, their authority. And it's commonly argued that this was the nature of the courts here. Uh, potentially, they were dragging them before the Jewish courts, the unbelieving Jewish courts. However, another option that would complement later elements of the letter is these could have been oppressive masters and landowners or like authorities who were unscrupulously take, taking the poor to task for inflated and overbearing debts. They were crushing them with the leverage they had with the position that they had instead of expressing it's not that you're just going to give everything away and be a bleeding heart. No, it wasn't just that. It was, there was malice there. There was a wickedness. There was an oppressiveness. And James speaks to that at the end of the letter. So while there are a range of options from wealthy, unbelieving Jews taking the poor believers to religious tribunals to the oppressive debtors pressing them to the extremes of their legal allowances, it's clear that there was a pattern of unjust, unrighteous conduct toward the weak, the meek, and the lowly, those in whom God has directed his affectionate care. And with one final question, James goes on to escalate the matter of offenses and the absurdity, the absurdity of one's sin in exercising partiality toward such a company. Because remember, he's not just saying, hey, guys, let me, let me express to you that I can relate to you. I know what it's like to struggle. No, he's saying, these are people that offend and hurt Christ's church, and you've demonstrated partiality toward them. That's weird. That's wrong. And he's painting how clear that picture is. And so we continue on with verse 7. Did they not blaspheme the good name by which you've been called? And blasphemy, as you well know, is a form of slanderous and demeaning speech directed toward or about God. So if I slander you, it's not blasphemy, it's slander. I'm, assault, I'm insulting you, I'm speaking poorly of you. But if I insult the name of Christ attached to you, now I've blasphemed. So blasphemy is direct, speech directed toward or about God. It's slander speech, it's demeaning and otherwise. So this company of affluent persons, this crowd of flashy dressers and these well-decorated men and women whom you would defer to in honor and generous care find it as easy to accept your praises as they do to slander your Redeemer. And that should give us reason for pause. It makes one wonder if we truly understand that to speak deficiently of God is shameful enough, but to speak vile of him is perplexingly foolish and wicked. And being put down or, or slandered on a personal basis is hurtful and distressing. But lines are crossed when it's Christ who's assaulted, when it's the name by which we have been called is assaulted, when the good name by which we've been called is blasphemed, when we are made low or humiliated or slandered because of our identification with him who chose the poor 
with him who promised them to be heirs of his eternal kingdom. So with that, tell me, how can one keep that company, much less defer to them in some superficial way? It doesn't make sense, does it? And now that command in 2.1 is so much easier to obey when we start painting this picture more clearly. Because maybe someone could say, well, to love my neighbors themselves, and they're my neighbor too. We know that. And even enemies, I love them, and I'm exercising love toward them. It's not, a sin, it's not out of any sincere expression of love for them. So, so stop looking in the mirror, walking away, and lying to yourself. Rather, it's a plainly, it's a, it's a, it's a consuming love for self. Because somewhere in that internal conversation that one has with themselves is the curiosity of what can they bring to the table for me? Flashy clothes, bright rings, dressed well, clean. There's something in that head rattling around with, <laughs> that'd be a good, good one to have here, wouldn't it? Imagine how many little manual child stars we can put up now versus the, oof, somebody keep an eye on this guy. And you find out that, well, he, he's got an affection for Christ. And it's not always these uh, as extremes. I recognize that, but we also don't need to lose something in the picture that James points for us. So how does one get to such a place? A place of demeaning the humble and exalting the proud. Well, it's the natural drift that can and often will occur. Um, we were, um, Andre and I were in a meeting this week, a ministry meeting, and um, I don't want to necessarily in this context express too many details, but there was a faithful man there that had been at his church for 40 plus years, maybe 50 years, I don't recall now. And he was talking about the seasons of the life of the, of the church they'd experienced. And he said, at one point in time, we were really, really big. And we woke up one morning, and we realized we were a liberal church and we don't even know how we got there. And he said that, you know, the Lord restored and corrected and we shrunk down and, and things have changed over time and, and whatnot. This is a natural drift that can and will occur. You look at when we pray for Turkey and we're like, well, Lord, you have your church there. And the first century church would be like, of course he has his church there. Who do you think Paul's writing to? Drifting can, it's natural, it will occur. But it's all but a certain outcome for those who fail to refrain from being stained by this world. Because this is in lockstep accord to a carnal world's dealings with others. So if we obey the commands in chapter 1 to keep ourselves unstained by this world, then it's to be a preservational care. And so the resolution has to be repentance expressed through a, wisdom, through a vigorous pursuit of the wisdom that comes from above. So when we find, we wake up one day and we realize we are partial. We are not exercising love for others as we ought then what do you do? You repent of it. You pursue the wisdom that comes from above, which would immediately direct us to James's opening command here that my brothers do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And we root ourselves back to that opening command, a command that has a direct view to a righteous fulfillment of the law expressed by one loving their neighbor as themselves, a command that presupposes one having heeded the first of the two great commandments of also loving God. So that being said, all this uh, allusions to the law, while we're not under the law of Moses, we have the same Lord and the same expectations of love and faith and holiness, which expresses itself, expresses themselves clearly throughout the New Testament's rich range of direct commands and commandments that were effectively developed through case law, as it were. The equivalent to case law, the church is struggling. How do we answer it? Ah, here we go, an apostolic insight. As the church wrestled, the people needed direction, they needed clarity, they needed correction, so came also further commands and refinement, just like we saw with the Old Testament law of Moses as judge as well. Therefore, we are not without law, as it were, 
To the contrary, James is pressing us to where we will return next week to the application of the royal law, which has been the center of our attention for some two weeks now, namely to love our neighbor as ourselves. And while there will be varying levels of struggle with the tension that naturally occurs in reading and study, particularly when considering the relationship of some of the matters that intimately pertain to the faith community of Israel and now do and do not apply to the faith community of the church, we have these two indisputable and absolutely clear anchor points, as it were, that we are to love the Lord our God and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And with this, I hope you're beginning to more plainly see why I'm persuaded that we should expand the foundation of James through this fourth major section. I think he's doing something that will carry us for the rest of the letter. Because this is a section that duplicates, again, almost every major section, every major theme of the book. It's a section that completes the three points of unique emphasis in which he engages his readers as beloved. And it's a section that provides robust foundations for James' continued engagement of matters of faith and life that when applied faithfully, presses to perfection, to maturity, to being increasingly like Christ, who himself became poor, who chose the meek, the weak, and the lowly, who has made them rich in faith and has promised them the kingdom. It's a section that has called us to the kind of impartiality that we will remember by way of another expression of worship in but just a few minutes when we break a common loaf of bread together, when we remember our Lord who humbled himself to the point of yielding his life as a propitiatory sacrifice for the poor who would come to see that they had been forgiven much and in turn now love much. And when you love much, you will love one another and you won't exercise partiality. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for James's writing to these dispersed believers and laying a foundation for the early church to do the very things that are so critical. If we're going to be identified as being in Christ, what one of the most plain expressions of that is that we, we have love for one another. Jesus expresses that very plainly. John presses that in his gospel accounts and letters. And that's who we want to be, Lord. We want to be a people who have a proper affection, a love for you, and therefore a proper affection, and love for one another. And, and that expresses itself through not having a superficial partiality. That expresses itself in sacrifice and giving to one another and recognizing that the poor of this world have been elevated in such magnificent ways. Not every single poor person, but the poor who, who can take that principle and understanding that they know what it's like to be hungry, they know what it's like to lack, they know what it's like to struggle, they know what it's like to have to be dependent, and they apply all those principles to a good, giving uh, father of lights who provides redemption, who provides life, who provides food and drink, even to the point of calling upon us, look upon the lilies of the field and the birds of the air that our Heavenly Father provides. They understood that in a way that maybe we think it's silly because we, we have such generous uh, feast-like provisions every day. So Lord, we, we not artificially, but properly esteem the poor not artificially or uh, wrongly demean and, and look down on the wealthy, but to recognize that before you, we, we all have equal standing. We were all in need. All who are in Christ were indeed poor in spirit. And so, Lord, we ask, uh, develop this maturity in us to the end that we would exalt Christ and in exalting Christ be brought to a place of fuller perfection, mature, uh, completion, and maturity 
accordingly. Lord, help us also as we transition our attention now to participating in the Lord's Supper. What a magnificent, clear demonstration of humility and grace and giving of oneself and clearly of love, love expressed in a way that um, is unparalleled and in unparalleled fashion gives glory back to God as well. Help us to remember these things. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.